Let us pray. So, Father, we give you thanks for Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, and for his blood that does indeed cleanse each spot. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning, and good morning to everyone watching via the live stream. We're so glad that you've joined us, um, and glad you didn't need a canoe paddle to get here this morning as well. Um, As I said, first service, I think weather.com that I follow pretty closely actually got it right because they said we might get uh, up to an inch on Friday night, an inch on Saturday, and light rain on Sunday, and that seems to be a lot more accurate than some of the forecasts I was hearing for three inches yesterday, which thanks be to God, didn't materialize. I mean, we need rain, but we don't need quite that much at once. So I'd invite you now to uh, turn in your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them, or you can grab a Bible under your pew. There are some spread around. And turn to Philippians chapter 1, looking at our New Testament reading and actually backing up a couple verses prior to the start of our New Testament reading, beginning with verse, the second half of verse 18 of Philippians chapter 1. Here in Philippians chapter 1, or St. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, or as they say in West Virginia, Philippi. You know, there's a town spelled this way in West Virginia, but they pronounce it Philippi. It's like when I um, lived in Missouri, um, a town that was like Simon Bolivar was pronounced Bolivar. Um, but St. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, from Rome, imprisoned, probably around 61 or 62 AD. And in these verses, he ponders his future and all of the unknowns he's facing. His was a future filled with a host of temporal uncertainties. He did not know what the outcome of his imprisonment and trial would be. Would he be acquitted or convicted of the charges against him? Would he remain in prison or be set free? If released, would he be forced to remain in Rome or would he be able to once again travel to Philippi and the other churches he loved so dearly? Would he live or be executed? His world was filled with uncertainties, huge, huge question marks. And yet St. Paul experiences and exudes an absolute confidence about his future, not based on his present circumstances, and certainly not by somehow ignoring or denying the uncertainties he was facing and the possible outcomes. The uncertainties he was facing in no way diminished his confidence because his confidence, hear this, his confidence and optimism were rooted in Jesus Christ, his Savior. And because of Christ, Paul had unshakable confidence in God's character and God's promises for his future, no matter what happens. Now, we are not certainly chained in prison like St. Paul. We are not facing the possibility of execution. But we do live in a world filled with temporal uncertainties. Just a few weeks ago, we observed the anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And those of us who were around and living at that time can remember keenly where we were, what we were doing, who we were with on that fateful day. And you may also recall that as terrorism came to our shores in a horribly significant way, there was a genuine hope that people would truly turn to God on a large scale. 
Now, to be clear, the terrorism we experienced that day, people in many other nations in the world have lived with day in and day out, not only for a few days or years, but for even decades. And there are those of you in this congregation in the nations of your birth that experience that kind of persecution or who have beloved relatives and friends even right now that are experiencing that kind of persecution. I especially think of the nations, I'm, I'll miss someone here, but of folks in this church from Sudan and Nigeria and Pakistan where Christians are enduring terrible suffering and persecution. But there was this hope after 9-11 that people would truly turn to God in this country on a large scale. But let's be honest, that really didn't happen. Yes, people flocked to churches for a few Sundays, for a few special prayer services, but it wasn't very long before things returned to kind of the status quo as they'd been before in terms of turning to God. They re people returned to their old behaviors and their old ways of being even though the events of 9-11 changed the world around us in ways that we sometimes forget now, just the process of flying alone, you think about how drastically different it was for those who can remember the day when you could walk out and see your friend or loved one off at the gate and greet them as they came through the jetway on the plane. Some of you remember those days? Yeah. And a whole lot of other things as well. People put their trust once again in every sort of thing from earth, every sort of temporal thing from earthly governments to money to human potential, you name it. And yet for God's people, Psalm 20 reminds us that we must not become ensnared in this kind of thinking. In Psalm 20, we read these verses. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Brothers and sisters, hear this. Our security and our certainty as God's people is not based in the things or the systems of this world or in human potential and human progress. Even if we live in a relatively stable nation, this kind of temple trust would seem absurd to many believers around the world today who suffer in poverty and hunger and persecution, imprisonment, and even martyrdom. Believers, those who know Christ, trust in the name of our God, even as the psalmist writes. The name, the name which speaks of God's faithfulness, of God's covenant keeping, saving, sustaining, delivering power toward all of those who belong to him. And this, if this is the basis of our trust, like St. Paul, we can face all of the uncertainties of life in this fallen world with the certainty that comes through God's promises to his people. Promises which are rooted in the name, which are rooted in God's unchanging character. In 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, we read, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. And in 1 Corinthians 2 9, St. Paul writes, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 
Now moving back to our text from Philippians this morning, God is speaking to us through St. Paul's hope and expectation for his future, which is rooted in Christ, his Lord. He does indeed have an expectation, actually a whole package of expectations. Firmly held expectations established in God, established in God's faithfulness and keeping power. Paul knows that he will indeed be delivered from his present circumstances, either by continuing in his earthly life or by death as a martyr. Did you hear that? He knows that he will be delivered by his, from his present circumstances, either by continuing in earthly life or by death. But let's look in a little more detail at this foundation of Paul's expectation. And there are two aspects of this. First, the foundation of Paul's expectation is based upon the prayers of the Philippians and the spirit of Jesus Christ. In verse 19 of Philippians, we read this. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, at first glance, our inclination is to separate these two things, the prayers of the Philippians and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. However, grammatically, they are inseparable. There's a coupling together of these two things. A coupling together which demonstrates the closest relationship possible. Because it is God's provision of the Spirit himself that assures Paul of his future, his vindication, and of God being glorified whatever happens. The gospel of Jesus Christ will not be brought to shame and Christ will be glorified no matter the outcome of his present circumstances. But there's this link between the supply of the Spirit and the prayers of God's people. Victor Plymeyer was a missionary to Tibet in the first half of the 20th century, going first to Tibet in 1908 through China. Um, and Tibet at that time well, Tibet at this time is still a pretty remote region of the world, but in 1908, it was really remote. Plymer went there as a missionary. He served in Tibet for 16 years. Hear this, 16 years before he baptized his first convert. And in those 16 years, he buried his first wife and son who died of disease. During the 19, early 1920s, God led Plymeyer to um, take a circuitous trek across all of Tibet, from the Chinese border all the way to the border of Nepal, to share the gospel in these villages where they were ensnared in, in Chinese Buddhism and had never even heard the name of Jesus. Now, to be clear, what I'm going to share here um, is written in books, but Victor Plymeyer's niece was also Tammy's Sunday school teacher when she was a little girl. And so I have um, better verification of some of these things. He traveled all the way through Nepal on the circuitous route. And at one point while crossing the region, the Kuen Lin Mountains, um, which rise to 18,000 feet. How many of you ever been at a really high altitude? You know, like you can hardly get your breath, let alone hiking and trekking. This is the kind of region he was traveling through. But he received a warning from a caravan of traders that he needed to flee the area because he was going to be held up and taken prisoner by some of the tribal warlords in the area. It didn't deter Plymeyer. He was taken prisoner. and After several days of negotiation, the chiefs threatened to kill him. And Plymeyer's response was that if they decided to kill him, that really wouldn't be 
a very large thing. It would be a small thing as a matter of fact anyway. A very small thing. Interestingly, I'll get to the rest of the story in a moment, but Plymar was released and he continued his trek all the way to the border of Nepal. Paul, while he was in prison, I'm going to come back to Plymar in a minute. Paul, while he was in prison, found all of these things, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ and the prayers of the saints in Philippi inextricably linked. Paul's supply and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ was increased through the prayers, the intercessions of the Philippians. What an amazing truth to ponder. What an incredible and mysterious truth of God that we must not overlook, brothers and sisters, because you and I are part of a spiritual community here and all around the world in heaven and on earth, joined together in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit of God himself, and we cannot take that lightly. We need to know that we are aided by the prayers of one another, not just here, but throughout the entire universal body of Christ. And you cannot find stronger support in all of Scripture regarding the importance of upholding one another in prayer than what St. Paul says here. But back to Victor Plymeyer. Several years later, Victor Plymeyer was home on furlough, and a lady in a church in Olympia, Washington, came up to him and began sharing how um, God had given her a vision. They compared times, and it was at the time he was being held captive. And she described in great detail how God had spoken to her. Remember, this is, there is no internet. There's no telephone. Everything was coming back and forth by mail. So it took months for things to come back and forth um, in terms of communication. But this lady then began to describe to Victor Plymar in great detail this vision God had given her that was precisely a vision of the village he was being held in, what his captors looked like, what weapons they were using, and God had put it on her heart in that very time to pray for him. And there was a second instance of this sort of experience that Plymeyer had. He had been reported dead, okay, in, a missionary, in the missionary press. And again, remember, slow communications. He wasn't dead, but he'd been reported dead. So people in the United States thought he was dead. And there was a lady in Detroit who felt led by God to pray for Victor Plymeyer's feet. Now, that may sound odd, but it, he returned home on furlough again four or five years later and was talking with that lady, and she shared this, and he realized that this was at a time, precisely at a time, when he had been thrown from his horse while crossing a stream in the mountains to Tibet in the winter and become soaked, and he was in danger of his feet freezing and losing his feet to frostbite. And God spoke to this lady, even though he was supposed to be dead, to specifically pray for his feet. You and I are part of a spiritual community. There is a direct correlation between the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ and the prayers of the saints on behalf of one another. As Ephesians 6.18 reminds us, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all of the saints. Brothers and sisters, through the Spirit of God, we are linked together with believers all around the world. And being linked together, we need to be obedient when God prompts us to pray for others 
even in specific ways that we may not fully understand at the moment. Because God uses those prayers in the mystery of his workings. The first foundation of Paul's expectation, the prayers of the Philippians and the spirit of Jesus Christ. The second foundation of St. Paul's expectation is based in the confidence that Christ will be exalted. Verse 20 of Philippians chapter 1. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He could rest in the assurance and eagerly expect God being glorified because his life was not his own. Rather, his life, as he wrote even in Colossians 3.3, his life was hidden with Christ in God. He was at his Lord's disposal. He had the assurance that whatever the outcome, it was no disgrace for him. There was no disgrace in being imprisoned for Christ, not even in being put to death for Christ. His destiny was secure and established in Christ, and his first and foremost concern was God's glory. And God offers you and me the very same assurance. As we submit ourselves to God, walking in his will, we have the assurance, brothers and sisters, that no matter the circumstances we face, we are indeed in God's gracious and loving care, and he will use us to bring glory to himself. Well, we've looked at the foundation of Paul's expectation. Finally, we need to look at the nature or the content of this expectation. And the essence of this is found in verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul faces two alternatives. To continue walking with Christ in this earthly life or to leave this world and be fully present with his Lord. And as he sees it, while he prefers death over continuing in this world, he is really faced with a truly win-win situation. For those who belong to Christ, the truth is we cannot lose. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's why Victor Plymeyer could face those captors and say it would be a small thing if they chose to put him to death. Look at what Paul writes in verses 22 through 23. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Because Christ was Paul's singular pursuit and passion in life, to die was gaining his lifelong desire. For him to die physically is to more fully gain Christ, to be in Christ's presence for all of eternity. Is that true for you and me? Can we honestly say to die is gain, to depart and be with Christ, that is far better? We can only honestly say this if Christ is the singular, the singular pursuit of our lives. Ultimately, because of his surrender to Christ, the choice was not Paul's to make. 
His choice, the choice each of us must make daily by God's grace and power at work in our lives, is to be fully surrendered, choosing to submit to God's plan, God's purpose, God's will for our lives. To live, brothers and sisters, is Christ. Life, true life, is Christ. Are we surrendered to our Lord in this way? I think too often for me and all of us, it is often more for me to live as Christ plus work, plus leisure, plus accumulating wealth, and you name it, we could go on and on. And too often from you and for me, the pluses become our primary passion and we make Christ the plus. You follow what I'm saying? For me to live as work, for me to live as financial success, our growth in Christ, our peace and joy in the Lord, the true quality of our lives, even here and now, is determined by whether or not Christ is the primary and the singular focus of our lives, just like he was for St. Paul. To live as Christ, to continue serving our Lord and Savior, to proclaim, to share, and to live out this life of Christ, this God-given life, that touches others and brings transformation not only to our lives but through to them as the Spirit of Christ touches them through you and me. And then and only then to die is gain. To die, to experience the fullness of joy and blessing that Christ has for each of us that are his, not only now but for all of eternity. Can we, can we honestly say that to live is Christ, to die is gain? Is Christ the singular focus and passion of my life and of your life? Or have the pluses gotten in the way? It really boils down to a matter of priorities, kingdom priorities. And here's the thing. When Christ is our passion, when he is our sole focus and heart's desire, in his goodness, he so often blesses us with a whole lot of the pluses too. But the converse is not true. If we focus on the pluses, Christ is excluded. In Christ, we are assured of grace, God's grace, and all that we need for the present and for the future beyond what we can imagine. That's what God's word tells us. And as one pastor friend was in the habit of saying, which is true, our future is as bright as the promises of God. When we place our faith and trust in Christ and make him our priority. <clears throat> There's a, an Indian fable that's told of a prince, a wealthy prince who was traveling in a large caravan and they passed through a small village and in this village a beggar was sitting on the side of the road in the village and the prince ordered the caravan to halt. He climbed down from his animal and walked over to the beggar and said to the beggar, beggar, give me your grain. The beggar had a small bag of rice next to him, and that's all that he had. And the beggar very carefully reached into the bag and counted out three small grains of rice, stretched out his hand and gave the prince three grains of rice. The prince took the grain, moved his hand across the beggar's hand. The beggar immediately clenched his hand shut, 
the prince climb back on his animal or the caravan to move forward and they rode off into the distance. And as they did, the beggar unclenched his fist and there were three small grains of gold. As the caravan went off into the distance across the horizon, the beggar said, oh, mighty prince, if I had only known, I would have given you all that I have. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you that our promises are as bright as the future of your promises as we root ourselves and surrender fully to you. And that you withhold no good thing from those who trust you. Father, forgive us when we've defined or assessed what is a good thing by the standards and the values of this world rather than the values and the priorities of your eternal kingdom. And Lord, may we repent of times where we've allowed the pluses, the other stuff, to become priorities or to be overemphasized in our lives. Forgive us, Lord. Establish us anew on the foundation of Christ knowing that to live for him in full surrender is a life-exuding promise where we can truly say to live is Christ, to die is gain. And Father, thank you as well for the mystery of prayer and how you lead your people in prayers and visions to intercede for one another, not just here in this church, even though you do that, and not just here in this community, but across the world to the ends of the earth. And that, Lord, as we pray faithfully, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ is increased in the lives of others for the work of your kingdom and your gospel. So, Lord, draw us more fully into you. Draw us more fully into that place of surrender that our lives would reflect your glory and that we would be fully tethered to Christ and let go of the things of this world that we may give you our all for the glory of your name. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.